If you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to Acts chapter 17. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one around you somewhere. Uh, And we're going to be on page 926 in the Bibles that are around you. And if you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you. It's our gift to you. Page 926 in the Bibles around you, Acts chapter 17. While you're turning there, uh, I want you to think with me about something. At least to me, it seems like we live in a culture of exaggeration. Just everything that we do, we exaggerate. All right, We exaggerate everything about everything, and even that statement was probably an exaggeration. It's just how we talk. We talk in hyperbole. We talk in exaggeration. And what we normally do with this exaggeration, the way it normally works, is we will exaggerate the negatives in people that we differ from while exaggerating the positives in ourselves. Right? And so red states <clears throat> will exaggerate issues with blue states. Blue states will exaggerate issues with red states. You exaggerate the greatness of your own sports team. You exaggerate the, the villainy of your sports rivals. This is just how we talk. We talk in exaggeration. And we do that because we want to present ourselves or at least make ourselves look better. We want to make ourselves look greater. And so we exaggerate, because we have to exaggerate to make ourselves look better, to make ourselves look greater. But this week, what we've been talking about all through VBS is a greatness that is so great, it can't be exaggerated. It, It literally can't be exaggerated. The God of the universe who made everything and is infinite and holy and righteous and majestic and just huge and supreme and sovereign and Lord He cannot be exaggerated because he's infinite in all his attributes. And you cannot overstate infinity. He is a big, big, big God. And so we've talked about that all week long. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we don't think about God or regard him as we ought is because we've traded in this truth of his, this is my word, unexaggeratable glory and greatness, we've traded that in for an impotent, domesticated, middle-class-sized deity we think that we can control and explain. And when we make that trade, we're robbing ourselves of truth, obviously, but we're robbing ourselves of walking in joy before this One who is so great and so glorious and has sent His Son to rescue us. And we're making it actually hard for us and others to believe in him because we speak of him a lot of times as small and weak and just kind of lame. And so just kind of give you an example of this. Charles Misner is a brilliant American physicist who's done a lot of work on Einstein's general theory of relativity. And in talking about Einstein and why Uh, Einstein never believed in the Christian God. Misner said that it was uh, largely because of the way Christians often spoke about that God. And here's here's what Misner said. He said, the design of the universe is very magnificent. And we've been talking about that all all week. Galactic starvators. The design of the universe is very magnificent and should not be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religions. Although he struck me as basically a very religious man, Einstein must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt they were blaspheming. 
He had seen so much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that the churches he had run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. And so all week long, through the theme of galactic star bears, we've been trying to hammer home proper respect for the author of the universe. That He is big. That He is glorious. That He is mighty. And this morning I want to do just a little bit more of that. And so we're going to be doing that out of Acts chapter 17. And so just kind of land, since we're jumping right into the middle of the book, what's going on here is Jesus has come and He's lived a perfect sinless life. He's died on the cross to pay for our sins. He's risen again. He's ascended back into heaven. And the church is now spreading. And the apostles have gone out all over the known world. And the church is now spreading. And one of the apostles is a guy named Paul. Some of you in your traditions may call him St. Paul. And Paul is traveling all around the Mediterranean telling people about Jesus and starting new churches in different cities. And so Acts 17, he's in Athens, Greece, just the height of civilization, you know, Rome, but it all began back in Greece. And in Athens, they had an area where people, philosophers, just came to kind of debate things. And so he walks into this place amongst a group of agnostics, Epicureans, Stoics, different philosophies, and he's talking to them about Christianity. And so in that section we're going to look at, he, he lays out for them and then through God's word for us four truths about the greatness of God. And I want us to look at these truths and see how God really is beyond exaggeration. His goodness, His grace, His glory beyond exaggeration. So we'll pick it up in verse 22, Acts chapter 17, page 926 in the Bibles around you. Look at verse 22 with me. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, and that's like kind of a place where all these philosophers came to debate things, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. All right, this is the way Misner described Einstein. This would describe a lot of us as well. Just have just kind of a general religiosity about us. We're not Christian, but we're open to spiritual things. And so he's saying, hey, guys, men of Athens, I, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so in the first century Athens, there was a saying that it was easier to find a God than it was to find a man because there were just altars and temples, just a ridiculous number of altars and temples to a ridiculous number of gods that they worshipped. And because they were afraid they might leave one out who might show up and want to just slaughter them all, they decided to set up an altar here to the unknown God. Just in case we miss one, that, that, that's Him. And so Paul's walking in and he's saying, hey, the one that you worship is unknown. Let me tell you about Him. He's actually the only one. He's the Creator of all things. And so let's just jump into that. And so verse, we'll, we'll start in 23 again. For, I for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us. And so in there, he's, He lays out four major statements about the glory and the greatness of God. And the first one right there in verse 24 is that God is Creator. All right, he, The God who made the world and everything in it. Right? He made the world and He made everything in it. He created everything. There's not one thing that, that exists that God did not create. And so if He created all things, every single thing, that means He Himself can't be created. That He is eternal. He has always been. He has all and He always will be. The psalmist says, from everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. I read a, a guy and he described I thought it was very... He just it, the way he said this just fit very well, really well. He says this: God was the living God when this universe banged into existence. He was the living God when Socrates drank his poison. He was the living God when William Bradford governed Plymouth Colony. He was the living God in 1966 when Thomas Altizer proclaimed him dead, and Time Magazine put it on the front cover. And he will be the living God 10 trillion ages from now when all the puny pot shots against his reality will have sunk into oblivion like BBs at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. There is not one world leader, world ruler right now who will be there in 50 years. And in fact, in 110 years from now, this world will be populated by 15 billion people. The 8 billion of us who are on earth right now will not be here. We will have faded like a mist that's here today and gone tomorrow. But that's not true of God. He has always been. He will always be. He will never fade away. He, he had no beginning. He depends on nothing for existence. And so this eternal God created everything. And if you've been a member of this church for any length of time, you'll know this Latin phrase, but he created it ex nihilo. That's Latin for out of nothing. So it's not that there was God and there was goo, and he took the goo and made everything. No, there's just God, and out of nothing, he made everything. And this is an astounding thought. If you will think on this, think about this for just a minute. There is no such thing as the expanse of the universe. And God speaks. And there is. There's no such thing as oxygen. God speaks. There is. There's no such thing as nitrogen. God speaks and there is. There's no such thing as molecules or cells or water or land or, or planets or stars. And God speaks. I mean, He just speaks. That's His power. He just talks. And all these things come into existence. And as we're talking about stars, to the tune of like a hundred Billion galaxies filled with stars. The Hubble telescope's probably only seen like one billionth of the galaxies that are out there. And so we're talking 10, at least 10 octillion stars. So if you want to write that down, that's a 10 with 27 zeros after it. All in the palm 
of God's hand. Now, if that's so big you can't even wrap your arm, let's just come down to one of those stars. Ten octillion in the palm of his hand. Just come down to one, our, our star, the sun. All right, relatively small star. But if we were going to represent the distance from the earth to the sun as one thickness of paper, one, one thickness, we're not talking length, we're talking thickness, 93 million miles, 93 million miles, it takes light, light goes really fast, you know, light, eight minutes to get here from the sun, if 93 million miles is represented by one thickness of paper, that's 93 million miles, the next closest star will be a stack of papers seven stories tall. That's the next closest star. That's 93 million miles. And the distance across our galaxy, and again, this is just one galaxy amongst billions and billions and billions, would be a stack of paper 310 miles tall. Or from here to St. Louis. In that. This is the God that we're talking about. He created everything. He is staggeringly huge. Staggeringly massive and mighty. He speaks and it exists. There's not one molecule that He does not have control over, that does not obey Him. Stars, they come into and out of existence when He feels like. This is who He is. He's that powerful. He speaks, things happen. This is the God we bow before or will bow before Someday. Staggeringly massive. Creator of all things. And we get our next phrase right there in verse 24 that describes Him. The God who made the Lord, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. And so there's our next phrase. Not only is He Creator, but He's also Lord of heaven and earth. So He didn't just create it and wind it up like a top and spin that thing and just step back. No, He's actively involved in this life, in this world, in this universe, in your lives. Crown jewel of His creation are people, and He's actively involved. Lord, ruler, heavens and earth. Over every ounce of it. And the Bible is divided into two sections. Old Testament, New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's 39 books. And at the end of the Old Testament, there's 12 books that are called the, the Minor Prophets. One of those guys is a guy named Malachi. Extremely short book. It only has 55 verses. But in those 55 verses, Malachi refers to God as the Lord of hosts 24 times. Just really hammering on the sovereignty, the might, the height, the glory of who God is. His sovereign power and will. That He has infinite authority in the universe. And the, war, the, 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 the term Lord of hosts means that He is commander-in-chief of all the forces of heaven and earth. Of every nation, every civilization that's ever been behind all of that, working in mysterious ways that we don't always understand. God's in control of all of that, doing things for His purpose. And so like He did with Cyrus the Great, like he did with Pharaoh, like he did with Nebuchadnezzar, he can and does wield all armies, rulers, kingdoms of this earth to accomplish his purposes, whether they know it or not. Whether we realize it or not. He's the Lord of earth. But he's also the Lord 
of heaven. And so in Isaiah, another Old Testament prophet, a lot longer, 66 chapters in his book. But in chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah writes this. He says, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, that's a, a, a king of, of Judah, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. He's going to describe them. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. This is the seraphim. Okay, they're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And so many of you know, I've got a brother. And if you're a guest, I have a brother who is a pilot in the Air Force. He's right now flying a T-38, which is that plane. Actually, this is a photo from his cell phone. I told him, don't text and fly. And he sent this to me. He's like, look what I'm doing. I'm like, what are you doing? This, these are our tax dollars. All right, so this is what he's flying right now, training our next crop of fighters and bombers. But for years and years, he flew the B-1B, which is this plane, all right, which is a $300 million plane, which I love. He failed his first driver's test, and yet he's flying this. Again, tax dollars at work, right? But as you can see, this thing has four huge engines on the bottom of it. All right, this is a big, big plane. This is a bomber. Big plane, swept wing, fastest plane in the world at sea level. It can fly Mach 1.2, 500 feet off the ground. Other planes can go faster at, at you know, altitude, fastest one in the world at, at sea level. But those four engines that you see on the bottom are the same thing that, that's on an F-16. So there's four of them. So when this thing takes off, it is ridiculous, and those afterburners light, it is so loud. Several years ago, I got to do what they call a busy taxi, which I got to climb up in the cockpit and just kind of crouch down, and, and as they you know, went through the checklist, getting ready for takeoff, pre-flight, all that, I'm in there, and then I got to ride as they you know, taxi and make their way down the taxiway to the actual runway, and I had earplugs in, and I had earmuffs on, and they, they lowered the boom, and I climbed down the ladder, and Sarah's with me, and we, I ran over and got in a Suburban that was nearby, and we climbed maybe 200 yards away, and we climbed in, uh, I climbed in there, shut the door, and he lit the afterburners to take off, and every bolt and nut in that Suburban started rattling and shaking, and I could, I mean, I could feel it. My electrical system, I think, got changed. If I, if I was out of rhythm, I'm now in rhythm. If I was in rhythm, I'm now out of rhythm. It was hugely, just so loud. Earplugs, muffs, in a Suburban, to everything's rattling. It's shaking the foundation. Like, that's what, it's kind of like these seraphim. They're so loud, they're shaking. They speak, holy, holy, holy is the word of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook. That's, that's what's happening here. And so when you think about these angelic beings here, these things are powerful. Think B1B engines, hugely, hugely loud. So powerful, right? 
But not even they can stand to look at God. They cover their face. As powerful as they are, not even they can stand in His presence feeling worthy. They even cover their feet. They, don't, they're, they're, they feel so small in His presence. And so great and good as they are, as powerful as they are, untainted by human sin, they still have this reverential fear of God Almighty. And then you even think about angels. And when angels show up to humans in the Bible, what is the first thing they say every single time? Do not be afraid. Right? They're not cloth-diapered babies with harps and wings. They are terrifying. So every single time, don't be, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. First thing out of their mouths. But if the seraphim and if angels themselves hide in holy fear and reverence before the splendor of God, how much more will we shudder and quake in His presence when we can't even endure the splendor of His angels? Do you see how massive He is? How powerful, almighty, glorious, beyond exaggeration. This is who God is. He's the Creator. He's Lord of heaven and earth. And He's in need of nothing. Look at verse 24 again, back in Acts. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind, life, and breath, and everything. And so Paul's pointing out here, hey, your little gods that are in these temples, they have to have someone come feed them. You've got to house them. You, you've got to go clean that thing off and clean it up. That's a pretty puny God that needs someone to come serve him. But the true God of the universe is a God who needs nothing. He needs nothing. There's nothing He needs. And so, God is not some needy deity who's just in heaven, you know, fawning or just wanting our worship so much. Just, oh, I need this person. I can't be complete without this. Now, does He want us? Does He love us? Does He want us to worship Him? Absolutely. He gave His Son for that. But He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. He's the Lord of hosts. So kill any idea of God as a small, whiny, lowercase g God who basically bribes you into worshiping Him because He needs that. No, He's gracious and loves us, but He doesn't need anything. He's the Alpha and He's the Omega. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Eternal, infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, eternal infinite in all His attributes. There's nothing He needs. Nothing can make Him more glorious. Nothing can take away from His glory. It's beyond exaggeration. And in Isaiah, again, chapter 46, God describes Himself this way. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
even calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Which brings us to verse 26 in the book of Acts, chapter 17. And number four on our, you know, describers of God, and we've already hit on this one, so we'll be brief with it, but just he's sovereign over all. So he's the creator, he's the Lord of heaven and earth, he's in need of nothing, and he's sovereign over all things. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us. And so, He's sovereign over all things. Creator, universe, ten octillion stars, Lord of heavens and earth, but even down to the details of when we would be born and where we live. He's sovereign over this. So He never looks down in the world and thinks, oh man, I wanted that person to be born in 2000, not 2005. I wanted them in 75, not 80. Ugh. No. He's in control of it all. Which means, very practically, not a single person in this planet is an accident. No matter how you came into the world, no matter how you came into the world, you were created by this massively huge omnipotent, omniscient God for a reason. And He loves you. He created you. And He loves you and wants to draw you to Himself in salvation. But this is who He is. He creates all things. He's sovereign over all things, including when we'd be born, you know, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, where we would live. And He does this so that, verse 27, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. So if we've got to find Him, all right, that means we're separated from Him. We're not with Him. We're separated from Him. And we're separated from Him by our sin. God is holy. He is holy. Perfect. Righteous. And we are sinners. And so there is a huge Gap there of separation between a holy God and sinful humanity, you and I. But here's what just inflames my heart when I let my mind just dwell on this. And this is what I want you to see and what I want you to get these next few minutes. This God who created everything, He's Lord of heaven and earth, He's in need of nothing. He's sovereign over all things. He's glorious. He's majestic, high and lifted up. The, the train of His robe fills the temple. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. God of the universe. Ten octillion stars in His hand. Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, all-powerful. This God who knows every second of your life Every God-belittling thought you've ever had 
action you've ever done, deed, everything in your life that you've ever done or would do, this God of His own good pleasure came after you in Christ. This massive, glorious God, He has come to rescue you from your sin, from the wrath that we deserve for our sin. And He hasn't just come to the rescue like generally, He's done it personally. He comes for you personally. After you. In Christ. And just think about that for a minute. Like he didn't have to. We do not deserve it. We've sinned. We've blasphemed. And God doesn't need our worship. But of His own good pleasure. Because of His mercy. And because of His grace. And because of His love. He chose to come after us. This is His love for you. He sent Jesus to rescue us. Jesus came and lived the perfect, sinless life that none of us have, but that God demands. Jesus came and did it for us since we didn't, since we failed. And in the punishment we owe for our sin, Jesus came and was punished for us in our place as our substitute. And then He rose again in victory over sin and death so that anyone who believes in Him, repents and believes in Him and what He's done, His actions, not our actions, trusting what Jesus has done, will be forgiven, will be adopted into the family of God and loved by this Creator, infinite, majestic God. That is mind-boggling good news. And when we allow ourselves to turn God into some sort of little domesticated house cat of a God we can put in our lap and kind of pet, that robs us of basking before the glory of this one who's so massive, yet has come after us. And then on the other end of the spectrum, sometimes some of us in here have a defective view of God where we have a hard time believing that He could actually be for us and love us. We think that He's just an angry God in heaven just waiting for somebody to mess up so He can pounce on you and just take you to the woodshed. That's not the God of the Bible. That's Zeus of Greek mythology. And so it's time to let go of that mess. The, the, the evidence that God loves you and loves you right now, not you in the future, like everybody agrees, me, I mean, Russell Gill in the future is going to be awesome. Right? Sorry, Russell. You're already awesome, buddy, but, but let's go back to me because I don't want to... Someday, I'm going to be awesome, right? But the proof that God is for us is that He loves us as we are right now, not just the perfect, super, super future version. He loves us right now. Jesus died on the cross for us as we are. And so nothing that we've done has surprised the omniscient God of the universe. So your background, things you've done, things you've been involved with, none of that surprises God. How we behaved last night, last week, none of that surprises God. God never says, oh, I didn't see that coming. If I had known Joe was going to do that, there's no way I would have sent Jesus to the cross for him. Nothing surprises God. Here's the reality we need to hear. Jesus knows these things about us and He still went. This, 
He knows it, and he's still with it. That's his love for you. This is his grace and his mercy, and he holds this out to you. And all we have to do is grab hold. We admit our sin, and we repent, and we believe in Jesus and what he's done, that what he's done makes us righteous with God, not what we've done. His life for ours, his death for ours, his resurrection as a foretaste of ours and as a guarantee that everything's true. He's alive after being dead. So you admit, you repent, you believe, you trust, you follow. Won't you do that? If you have not done that, won't you do that? This massive, huge God, infinite creator God of the universe who we will all stand in front of someday offers grace to anyone who will repent and believe. And so won't you grab hold of that? He holds it out to you. Take it. Follow Him. Give your life. Give your heart. Surrender to His love and His grace that He offers so free. This is the kindness of our God. He holds it out there. And He's calling you to Himself if you do not know Him right now. How do I, the, the elements that have led you to today, to being here at this moment, at this time, are not accidents. He has determined allotted periods and the boundaries of your dwelling place. He's at work. He's drawing you. He's calling you. Let Him in. He wants to lavish His grace upon you. A grace that just like His greatness cannot be exaggerated. This is all what Galactic Starvage is all about. The grace and the glory and the greatness of God who's come after us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for this week. And Lord, we thank You for You. You are so good. You are so kind. You are so terrifying in your might, in your awesomeness, in your power. Because it, it, it can't be exaggerated. It's so big. You are so huge. And so, Father, stagger us with the thought that in the midst of all that, in seraphim who can't even show their face, yet they speak and it shakes things. It shakes the foundations of the threshold. You've come after us in Christ and you know us and you created every single one of us on purpose and you desire to have a relationship to redeem, to rescue, to save us from our sin, from your wrath, and from ourselves, as we are depraved. And so, Father, for those of us in this room who have already trusted you, Lord, stagger us. Birth fresh affections for who you are and what you've done. And for those in this room who have not trusted you as Lord and Savior, you are sovereign, you are all-powerful, so grab them. Save them by your might. Give them faith to believe. So they might be adopted into your family. 
and have eternal life and forgiveness and joy that can never be taken no matter what circumstances befall their life. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.